In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. There's one consistent message throughout the whole Bible. God comes first. From the very first verse, in the beginning, God, through the law and commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Through the prophets, God said to Isaiah, I am the first. Through the gospels, seek first the kingdom of God. To the early church, they gave themselves first of all to the Lord. To the book of Revelation, where Christ says, I am the first. God comes first. Earlier, Theo read from the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. When Jesus was asked what is the most important commandment, he answered, the most important one is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Putting God first in our lives means loving him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. This passage is part of the Shema, Shema being the Hebrew word for hear, hear, O Israel. The Shema is the central prayer of the Jewish prayer book. Devout Jews pray it twice a day. For many Jewish children, it is the first prayer that they learn from their parents. In Christianity, the words of Jesus repeating the Shema are known as the great commandment. The practice of these words is therefore of central importance both in Judaism and in Christianity. The complete Shema prayer contains 248 words when spoken. They add an extra three in. 248 is a significant number. You can tell I'm an accountant. It is the number of positive commandments in the Torah. Love him in all your actions. In Judaism, 248 is also the number of parts of the body. There's that sense of love him with all your being. So we might change the prayer to, Hear, O congregation in Fitzroy, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Love him with your whole being and love him in all your actions. We all have songs or pieces of music which remind us of people or places or events. This is difficult. Gillian uh, and I were talking about this as we were coming down from the Isle of Skye uh, last weekend from our holiday. And uh, the music of Just the Two of Us by Bill Withers came on. And we were just saying how that reminded us 25 years ago of us leaving from our wedding reception and how romantic that was. And it just had so much good feeling that went with it. I'm sure you've got songs like that that really touch your soul. But a number of years ago, Kristen Getty recorded a song based on the Shema. As I went to see my dad five years ago for the last time, I listened to Kristen sing, Hear, O Israel. It makes these words unforgettable. It also reminds me of the desire of my own father's heart to see his family love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Almost I could stop there.
you can tell it does something. That desire of my father and mother that I would love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength was a big part of our lives. When I was 21, uh, my mom and dad gave me this Bible. It was a study Bible, and inside the front cover, I keep a few yellow sticky notes. These are probably yellow sticky notes of Bible studies that I attended in my 20s, so they've been around for quite a long time. But the very first one in the front cover of this particular Bible is a Bible study on Second Chronicles 25 about King Amaziah. Amaziah became king when he was 25. We are told that he did everything right in the eyes of the Lord as a 25-year-old, but interestingly, not wholeheartedly. And that word, wholeheartedly, is the word I have written in the front cover of the Bible that I use. As the story unfolds, he becomes distracted by many other things in his life and died an untimely death at the age of 54. Since my 20s, I have found serving God wholeheartedly a significant challenge, but a challenge not to be forgotten or given up on. That yellow sticky note is a constant reminder to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength wholeheartedly. God calls us today to put him first in our lives wholeheartedly. He calls us to love him through all our actions. He calls us to love him with our whole being, our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. Let's pause for a moment and ask ourselves this morning, what makes my heart sing? What's the passion of my soul? Or Steve might say, what's my grawl? What consumes my mind and my thoughts? What do I expend my strength and energy on? These are difficult questions, challenging questions. Let's be realistic. We live in a pagan society with many different idols and many different distractions. Big idols are usually known as money, sex, and power. This week, you might look at the front cover of the week. It tells the story of a website called Ashley Madison. 37 million people, names been made public this week, who have registered because they want to commit adultery. The Spectator this week, Web of Sin, Hugo Rifkin, reports on adultery, sex, and shame online. There are many distractions. You might be glad to hear that sex is not what I'm going to speak on this morning. John Milton's epic poem, Paradise Lost, is regarded as one of the best pieces of English literature ever written. The poem concerns the biblical story of the fall of man the temptation of Adam and Eve by the fallen angel Satan, and their expulsion from the Garden of Eden. It begins after Satan and the other rebel angels have been defeated and banished to hell. Satan employs his rhetorical skill to organize his followers. He is aided by his generals, Mammon and Beelzebub. Mammon is the Aramaic word that essentially means riches. I love Milton's picture of Mammon as a stooped angel more interested in heaven's streets of gold than the glory of God. 
This is what, what Milton wrote. Mammon led them on. Mammon, the least erected spirit that fell from heaven, for in in heaven his looks and thoughts were always downward bent, admiring more the riches of heaven's pavement, trodden gold, than aught divine or holy else enjoyed in vision beatific. By him first men also, and by his suggestion taught, ransacked the center, and with impious hands rifled the bowels of their mother earth for treasures better hid. Soon had his crew opened into the hill a spacious wound and digged out ribs of gold. Let none admire that riches grow in hell. Mammon is looking for servants. He too is seeking worshippers. Mammon promises us those things that only God can give. Security, significance, identity, independence, power, and freedom. Mammon tells us that he can insulate us from life's problems and that money is the answer to every situation. Mammon says to buy and sell. God says, sow and reap. Mammon says to cheat and steal. God says to give and receive. In Revelation, the Antichrist attempts to dominate people through the use of economics, preventing people from buying and selling unless they submit to him. In this way, the brief rule of the Antichrist will be through the spirit of mammon. And at times, mammon gets religious too. If you just had more money, you could really start helping people. This is a real issue for us in our society today. Jesus recognized the power of mammon. In Matthew 6, he declared, you cannot serve God and mammon. That's with a capital M. He knew mammon, with a capital M, could control us. Then in Luke chapter 16, Jesus called us to be faithful in unrighteous mammon with a small m. Jesus knew the benefits of mammon, small m, if controlled and used in a faithful way. But this tension between the benefits that come from an economy and its moral aspects were highlighted in two articles in the Financial Times over the last couple of weeks. The chairman of H&M, Stefan Persson, commented in the FT last weekend, in the middle of the 19th century, Johann Grippenstedt realized something that his countrymen, like other Europeans, are now in danger of forgetting. By opening up the economy to trade, he could make Sweden more hospitable to entrepreneurs. And in just a few generations, that decision would turn one of Europe's poorest countries into the one of the world's richest. He was certain that trade would make people see each other more as partners than enemies, and so facilitate tolerance, respect, and peace. Person continued, these advantages have surpassed even the most optimistic hopes. According to the World Bank, between 1990 and 2011, the number of poor people was reduced by 120,000 every day as a result of open trade. Taking people out of poverty is something we all want to celebrate. But consider for a few minutes another article in last week's Financial Times. An article by John Plender, author of Capitalism, Money, Morals, and Markets. This is what he says. 
The capitalist economy has a phenomenal capacity to lift people out of poverty, yet it struggles to create a just society. There is a more fundamental question of legitimacy relating to the central role of the money motive, greed in a word, in driving economic growth. As the economist John Maynard Keynes is said to have remarked, capitalism is the astonishing belief that the nastiest motives of the nastiest men somehow work for the best results in the best of all possible worlds. Today in the developed world, the harshest features of capitalism have been softened by state intervention, albeit at the cost of ever-increasing public debt. Blender concluded, yet the worry about the moral basis for capitalism remains. So how do we handle mammon faithfully? Out of the 31,000 verses in the Bible, 2,350 tell us how to be faithful in unrighteous mammon. Indeed, the issue is so significant that one in six verses which record Jesus' words deal with the issue of handling mammon faithfully. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to go through all 2,350 verses this morning. We've only a little time, but I think it indicates the seriousness with which we need to take this particular issue. What I would like to do is just to take a few minutes to look at the two principles that we read about in our scripture readings this morning, the law of the firstborn and the law of the firstfruits, which Matthew and Gillian read to us earlier. I've already said that Matthew is a firstborn. Anybody else a firstborn in their family? We find an important precedent in the 13th chapter of Exodus. In the passage, God says... Consecrate to me all the firstborn. It is mine. Is that some good news? All those hands that went up, firstborns, it is mine. Here God plainly declares that the firstborn is mine. It belongs to him. In fact, you will find God declaring that the firstborn is his 16 times in Scripture. It's vital that you understand something about this principle of the firstborn. Now, Theo, don't worry. God's interested in number two, three, and number four as well. (laughs) According to the Old Testament law, the firstborn was to be either sacrificed or redeemed. Glad I didn't get sacrificed. There was no third option. Every time one of your livestock animals delivered its firstborn, you were to sacrifice it, or it was designated unclean. If it was designated unclean, you had to redeem it with something which was clean and spotless a clean and spotless lamb. Firstborn children were to be redeemed. Today, some Jews still practice the mitzvah, pidyon haben, in which the firstborn is redeemed with five pieces of silver. In Luke's gospel, we read that Jesus was redeemed at the temple as a child by the sacrifice of a pair of doves. I fast forward and think about the account of John the Baptist meeting Jesus on the banks of the River Jordan. John was baptizing one day and looked up and sees Jesus walking towards him. At that point, John cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. With those inspired words, John perfectly defines the role Jesus is to fulfill. Jesus was clean, perfect and unblemished in every way. On the other hand, 
Every one of us is born unclean. Remember back to the principle of the firstborn in Exodus? Remember if the firstborn was clean, it was to be sacrificed? Do you see the symbolic parallel? Jesus Christ, God's firstborn, born clean, was to be sacrificed like a pure spotless lamb to redeem every one of us born unclean. Jesus, God's firstborn, was sacrificed that we might be redeemed. Have you ever wondered how God could justify taking the lives of Egypt's firstborn in the final plague described in Exodus? It is because the firstborn belongs to God. God had a legal right to take every firstborn because every one of them in Egypt and Israel belonged to him. But the firstborn of Israel didn't die that night, did they? Why not? Because a lamb was sacrificed to redeem them. So this idea that the firstborn belongs to God, that this firstborn needs to be either sacrificed or redeemed, is foundational principle in the whole of Scripture. Not only does the firstborn belong to God, but the first fruits belong to him too. Exodus 23 goes even further and says it is the first of the first fruits that God wants. The last of your first fruits isn't acceptable. Have you ever wondered why God's respected Abel's offering but not Cain and his offering? The Bible makes a very specific point that Abel brought his first fruits or firstborn, but Cain brought an offering in the process of time. In other words, Cain grew his crops and then in the process of time got around to bringing an offering to the Lord. There is a lesson for us in this. God looks at our hearts when we give and when we give the first of our first fruits, God receives and respects our offering. The principle of the first fruits was in operation when Abraham gave the first tenth of all of the goods he recovered from his enemies to Melchizedek, the priest. He sacrificed a tenth to redeem the rest. Do you remember the account of the fall of Jericho in the book of Joshua? You may recall that the Lord gave strict instructions that the Israelites were not to keep any of the spoils of Jericho. Why did the Lord say that all the silver and gold from Jericho had to be given to the Lord's house? Because it was the first city conquered in the promised land by the children of Israel. It was the first fruits. God was saying, bring all the silver and gold from Jericho into my house, and then you can have the rest. You will remember that one person amongst the Israelites disregarded God's clear instructions. The Israelites were told that the silver and gold was consecrated to the Lord, but a man named Achan took some for himself and became accursed. Think about that. When the spoils were set apart for God, they were consecrated to God or set apart for him. But after a man took some for himself, it was actually cursing Israel's efforts to take the promised land. Consecrated or cursed. If we give the first fruits to God, they are consecrated and made holy. But if we use the first fruits for ourselves, they are cursed because they are stolen from God. In Malachi, he didn't beat around the bush. In Malachi, God makes it clear that if we keep the first fruits to ourselves, we are robbing God. 
What a sobering thought that we can steal from God and therefore be under a curse. So let's be clear. The the firstborn belongs to God. The first fruits belong to God. They belong to him. Pride, the spirit of mammon might say to us, you've earned this money, you've worked hard, your ingenuity and talent have made it happen. It's yours. But no, God says, it is mine. St. Paul says we should set aside the first part of our income on the first day of the week and give it to God, bring it into his house. So perhaps to answer one of the questions, or one of the possibilities, how are we to be faithful in mammon? Paul explains that if we consecrate the, fir- consecrate the first of our money and possessions, our first fruits, and make them holy by giving them back to God, then the rest that we keep is redeemed and made holy and useful for blessing. Wow, what a principle. Paul explains that if we consecrate the first of our money and possessions, our first fruits, and make them holy by giving them back to God, then the rest that we keep is redeemed and made holy and useful for blessing. Ten years ago, I was given a little book, one of those books I think I will always have. Uh, It has such significance in my life. The little book was called The Blessed Life and was written by a man called Robert Morris. I was horrified when I first learnt about the principles of the firstborn and the first fruits. I never knew their significance or their importance. I had robbed God of what belonged to him. I was so shocked by the time I'd finished reading this book, I remember I couldn't get back into Fitzroy quick enough with a check to hand back to God what I had robbed from him. But that day when I brought that check of what I believed I had robbed from God, there was a change in my life, a fundamental change in my life. Now God was also in control of my checkbook. In my heart, my soul, my mind and strength, that day there was something about giving something back to God which belonged to him which changed the way I probably viewed everything. God came first. Perhaps it was a coincidence, but within a week of writing that check and bringing it to Fitzroy, and it wasn't an insignificant sum of money, a debt which I had written off several years before was repaid to me for exactly the same amount. I'm not into prosperity gospel, But there was something about God acknowledging that step in my life that I had found so significant. And in the past 10 years, as I have practiced the law of the first fruits and had the privilege of being able to give more, God has blessed in a whole variety of ways. What a wonderful God we have. So today on the first day of the week, on the first Sunday of a new month, let us commit ourselves to putting God first in our lives, to loving him wholeheartedly with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and as Luther might say, with our wallets as well, to love him in all our actions and with our whole being. 
Let's commit ourselves today to be faithful in unrighteous mammon, but not to serve mammon. And let's commit ourselves today to the principles of the first fruits.